Good evening, everyone. I want to welcome everyone to the uh, Enoch Pratt Free Library, especially given the way the uh, weather has been. I think everybody should get an award as a honorary freshwater sailor or something, especially given the uh, theme of tonight's um, author's lecture. Um, I'm Bob Burke, and I work downstairs in the Social Science and History Department. I'm happy to say that's where this book is going to class. And if you haven't had a chance to look at it, it is a really beautiful book, and uh, I think one that, that's, uh, that's definitely worth your time. I, by way of an introduction, I wanted to conjure up um, a scene. We're walking in, in Lower Manhattan, and you see the, the uh, tall skyscrapers and the very narrow streets, the narrow streets that, of course, reflect the original Dutch and English town. And we're walking west along Wall Street, and all of a sudden we catch sight of something that appears to be an anomaly, a very dark-looking church, a Gothic church. As we approach it, we find out that it's, it's called Trinity Church, and it's, a, it's, it's an oasis for people who work in the Wall Street area. If you're there around lunchtime, you'll see the workers uh, having lunch, maybe getting food from a hot dog stand or something and sitting um, around the church. You know, there's a cemetery back there, too, a very old one, and you'll see the tourists looking for Alexander Hamilton's grave or Robert Fulton's grave. But I want us to stop right in front of the entrance to Trinity Church, right there, just off to the left is a kind of monolithic sarcophagus. Most people pass it by because they don't, they don't know what it is. They just assume it's another grave, but it, it's, it's a different one. This particular sarcophagus has an, epi, has an epitaph on it. Let me read, read what the epitaph says. The heroic commander of the frigate Chesapeake, whose remains are here deposited with his expiring breath, expressed his devotion to his country, Neither the fury of battle, the anguish of a mortal wound, nor the horror of approaching death could subdue his gallant spirit. His dying words were, don't give up the ship. This is the burial place of Captain James Lawrence, the captain of the um, Chesapeake, who was mortally wounded um, in action against the British ship Shannon in June of 1813. Now, we're very fortunate to have with us tonight um, David Taylor. This is specifically, this is, this is particularly pertinent insofar as the city's celebration event is almost upon us. As I understand, the sailing ships have already taken off from Norfolk and are on their way here as we speak. Um, David's going to be discussing his new book, The War of 1812 and the Rise of the U.S. Navy. David is, by the way, also the author of the award-winning book, Soul of a People, the WPA Writers Project Uncovers Depression America, Ginseng, the Divine Root, and Success Stories, a fiction collection. David has written and co-produced documentary films for PBS, the National Geographic Society, Discovery Channel, and the Smithsonian Channel, including Soul of a People, which was nominated for a 2010 Writers Guild Award. Please join me in a warm Enoch Pratt welcome for David Taylor. Well, thanks, Bob. This is a uh, great introduction, and it's really a pleasure to be here in the Poe Room again. Um, this is, uh, this is uh, one of my favorite libraries, and um, I'm glad to be here. I'm sure it's one of yours as well. Uh, and also, as uh, Bob mentioned, on the eve of the celebration, uh, when uh, so many of these tall ships bring the experience of the Age of Sail and the Age of uh, the War of 1812 to, to Baltimore uh, again for the next five days. Um, so, but uh, I'm uh, very interested that, that uh, Bob mentioned that uh, sort of scene at, at Wall Street and, and James Lawrence. Um, even with lots of bicentennial hoopla to some degree, the, uh, the War of 1812 kind of manages to be a forgotten war in some sense. I mean, it has confusing origins. Uh, it has mythologized heroes and some half-remembered slogans. And, uh, uh, of course, we remember uh, 
Captain Lawrence's slogan, in part because it was is popularized at the time, but also because uh, his uh, friend and uh, uh, and uh, colleague, uh, Officer uh, uh, Oliver Hazard Perry, stitched it up on a great banner and sailed it from his ship during uh, several episodes uh, of the war. So. Um, uh, but at the time, you know, the America's disputes uh, with England were very much of a, a kind of a sideshow in the in the Napoleonic War uh, between England and France, um, and even within the U.S., the uh, it was a very uh, kind of a controversial war, both in how it started and it was kind of riddled with uh, strategic uh, and and political missteps. Uh, that made it uh, actually a, a war that many people for, for years after did want to forget. Um, there was confusion. Uh, this spring, a history blog posted two simple questions about the war. It's like, one was, uh, who were the good guys? And two, uh, who won? And uh, they got over three dozen different answers. Uh, so it was quite, a, just those simple questions sparked a, a controversy. We tend to think that the U.S. was united against the British when the war started. Uh, but in fact, the war erupt- when the war erupted, the U.S. was bitterly divided. Uh, people, the groups in the Northeast uh, were very skeptical uh, of, of the war. And uh, there were riots here in Baltimore uh, between the two factions. Uh, and several people were, were tarred and feathered and forced out of town for questioning uh, the rationale of going to war. New England states uh, actually discussed secession because they saw that their trade was uh, imperiled. They were trying to navigate uh, the conflict between uh, France and England without getting involved, and um, they thought the idea of antagonizing the world's largest navy uh, when they were trying to make a a maritime living was uh, crazy. Um, so uh, the question then is, why, why pick this fight? Well, um, James Madison and some in Congress thought first, well, they had legitimate gripes against uh, Britain's uh, treatment of U.S. sailors, of U.S. trade on the seas. Uh, and second, there was this matter of territory up north that perhaps the U.S. Uh, might be able to gain uh, called Canada. Uh, Thomas Jefferson had famously said at the time that uh, taking Canada would be just a matter of of marching. And so that argument and the idea that we wouldn't be challenging uh, Britain uh, with having a a large navy uh, somehow made the idea that this this could work, but it definitely appeared not to be that simple. So as the U.S. declared war in June of uh, 1812, there was the forces were not at all prepared for it, and uh, the navy, because of official policy of having very few uh, ships uh, and only basically trained men to man gunboats along the, to defend the coast, uh, was in uh, was caught you know off guard. Uh, they didn't have enough ships. There was a, uh, a huge frenzy of, of shipbuilding, particularly on the Great Lakes, uh, to uh, as as the war got underway. Um, but rather than sort of unpack a lot of these, uh, a lot of the sort of the political strategies and things that are harder to untangle at this remove, uh, we decided in, in researching the book really to explore it from a, a people's viewpoint of what this uh, crucible looked like, and particularly uh, on the sea and Great Lakes, where the war's defining experiences uh, really took place. Uh, So tonight I'd like to share a few of these stories uh, from the book about how the war affected people uh, on both sides, uh, but most of all uh, here in Maryland. So one story involves uh, kidnapping, espionage, and prison. Uh, Another story uh, starts with a dinner party uh, in Havre de Grace, and another starts in the Chesapeake Bay uh, and ends bitterly with a forced march uh, uh, down to, uh, southward. Maybe nobody from that time speaks, though, more vividly to the war's causes uh, than a young man named Joshua Penny, a merchant sailor from Long Island. Penny's saga struck me uh, when I came upon it while we were researching the book, 
uh, and um, found that he had published uh, a piece about it uh, later on as the, the war was underway. Uh, he went to sea as a boy to find his fortune, uh, got kidnapped by the British, fought his way back home, and ultimately became a spy f- against his old nemesis, the British Navy. Uh, he even did time as a prisoner of war uh, and still came home uh, defiant. And uh, get to sort of see how his story represents many uh, who, who, uh, who, who both in and outside of the Navy at that time. Basically, every town up and down the East Coast uh, had uh, at least a few ships in the maritime trade at that point. We were very much a country that faced the water. And, uh, and these ships, of course, were manned by young men. Uh, for decades, families saw the sea and, and working on the sea as a ticket out of poverty. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote a history about the Naval War of 1812, And in that, he said that a few uh, New England boys, quote, would reach manhood without having made at least one voyage to the Newfoundland banks after codfish. And in the whaling towns of Long Island, it used to be an old saying that no man could marry till he struck his whale. So while Roosevelt, who grew up in Sag Harbor, very close to where Joshua Penny's uh, home was, uh, was captivated as a boy about uh, 1812 stories. I mean, this was, uh, he grew up after the Civil War, and uh, so that shows how this shadow, these stories of uh, this war early in the century really uh, stretched across the whole 1800s. He wrote his naval history when he was in his mid-20s, and he was uh, fascinated by the idea of untangling these strategic uh, successes and problems of this uh, kind of crucible of the Navy. So Joshua Penny, one of nine children from a poor family, went to sea and learned the nautical life. He learned where each rope belonged on the ship and the three-watch system that divided the day up into three uh, shifts or watches for looking out for, for other vessels, for basically keeping uh, track of safety on, on the, the ship. And he learned how to scramble up the, into the trees, the, 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 the mass and the, uh, the yard arms, ten, you know, eight, ten stories above the water uh, without being tossed in, into the water. And that's what you'll find actually among the crews who come uh, from uh, the tall ships now, how they uh, train in the same, some of the same ways. Um, sailors at that point never wore glo- gloves uh, aloft. They never wanted anything between their hands uh, and, and the ropes uh, because that's what their, their lives depended on. Even whether it was bitter cold, uh, they would go up barefoot and barehanded uh, to, to make sure that they, they stayed on board. Um, but Penny did suffer brutally from a prominent cause of the war, and that's what this, uh, this print gets to, uh, the British practice of kidnapping, essentially, U.S. sailors and pressing them into the British naval service. Uh, the British stopped hundreds of American ships uh, in the decade before 1812 and press-ganged roughly 10,000 Americans, uh, claiming they were British deserters, um, uh, into service, they needed manpower for the, for the war against Napoleon, and they weren't uh, exacting about where they got it. Um, so that's why U.S. ships went to war with a banner saying free trade and sailors' rights uh, as a slogan uh, from their sails, because that was one of the, uh, one of the uh, major complaints uh, against the British. So as a young man before the war, Penny uh, fell into the hands of press gangs and was held by the British Navy for years. Uh, he called British warships nefarious floating dungeons uh, after being shanghai a first time by British officers when he was on shore leave in Ireland. Uh, he managed to escape and yet was snared again and was forced onto a 28-gun frigate, uh, attempted another escape, was captured and flogged as a lesson to the others. I mean, there were, uh, there were uh, Scandinavians on board who had the, the same uh, uh, fate um, finally, he escaped one more time, a third time, and spent months hiding in the caves of South Africa's Table Mountain, uh, surviving on honey and, uh, and hunted meat uh, before getting back all the way to Long Island, where he was from. 
So it was a real, uh, this was not simply a matter of being you know, kidnapped and forced into a 30 days of uh, uh, seaside life. It was, uh, for the people who captured this way, it was a real uh, sort of a war prison experience. So, and uh, he, uh, he managed to resume life and built a business with his small boat uh, off Long Island uh, with an eye trained on, of course, finding a way, uh, as he said, the first opportunity of doing mischief to those who had so long tortured me. So when the War of 1812 came, he got his chance. He signed up uh, as a spy, basically, to infiltrate and sabotage the British blockade. That was uh, as soon as the soon after the war was declared, the British said, "All right, we're just going to you know, seal off all of your trade and see how long you want to uh, keep a war going on under those terms." Uh, so, posing as a local vendor of produce and clams, Penny got aboard a British uh, warship to gather information uh, so that the U.S. Navy could use it to uh, to torpedo the ship. But when the British officers uh, realized he was a spy, uh, they tracked him down, seized him, and locked him in irons, uh, which were frequently used at that point, uh, putting him on the bare deck all day in the August heat. And so for 18 days, he survived on bread and water until the ship reached Canada, where he was jailed as a prisoner of war. Uh, He was finally released and made his way home uh, nine months later, uh, still defiant uh, with the war in its final months. So uh, it was amazing to come across uh, his account. We, we included a lot of that in uh, the book, as you'll see, and kind of woven through. Um, we also found a, a surprising range of memoirs by, uh, like his, uh, including accounts by veterans, by men who had been what they called powder monkeys, uh, basically boys uh, at the start of the war uh, uh, who ran p- gunpowder from the the uh, the holds to uh, to the cannon, and uh, that was their sort of apprenticeship uh, to to a life at, at sea. Um, one was a young British boy named uh, uh, Samuel Leach, uh, and Leach got caught uh, in one of the early battles of the war uh, on the HMS Macedonian uh, when Stephen Decatur's ship uh, attacked and and won and took the Macedonian uh, as a prize. So Penny's account of that battle, I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, Samuel Leach's account as a as a boy uh, of of being a part of that battle uh, is is harrowing, uh, and is part of the part of the book. Part of the uh, shows how life at sea and a battle at sea was such a, a claustrophobic, um, you know, bloody ground. Um, we also include uh, some from the. Uh, there's the, actually that battle exactly the, the Macedonian and, and the United States um, that was. Commemorated. There were, again, throughout the 1800s, the war um, was a huge theme in um, maritime art for decades. So you see some of the, 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 the famous battles, but also uh, some of uh, the less famous ones uh, as just kind of a, a common touchstone for artists and for their audiences to really come back to again and again to sort of process the stories from that war. Um, as I say, we found stories, uh, we included accounts from the log of the ship surgeon on the uh, USS Constitution, uh, and, uh, and showed uh, some of the tools of his trade here, including uh, extractors and uh, bone cutters. This, that was the extent of the, the equipment. Uh, you know, you think of like a, a medical bay uh, on, a, on a ship. That was the extent of what they had to work with. And there were only, when the war started, uh, there were, I believe, none. There were soon 12 uh, ship surgeons uh, serving uh, across the Navy, and they sort of had assistance from the crews that they worked with. Well, I said one story starts with a, with a dinner party in Havre de Grace. Um, actually, it was uh, two young people. There. Minerva Dennison uh, was just 17 years old, when she met uh, John Rogers in Havre de Grace, where they both were from, um, in around 1802. So this was a few years before the war. Uh, and he was already a commander uh, in the Navy, uh, commanded the USS Maryland. And uh, he had served in the first Barbary War. Um, 
And so, uh, but, you know, this was, these things were not so impressive to many people at home. Uh, Minerva's first impression of Captain Rogers uh, came secondhand, and it was not favorable. Uh, her mother returned from a dinner where Rogers uh, had attended, and uh, Minerva's mother later uh, said uh, uh, she thought he had a bad countenance uh, with black eyebrows and, and uh, sort of a brooding face. Uh, she said he had di- talked of an action in which he had engaged on the ship when the, dick, uh, the, when the deck was slippery with blood and that she had nearly fainted with horror. So sailors were a rough bunch. They recounted uh, tales that, that other people had not experienced. And so Minerva wasn't eager to meet uh, him at all. Uh, but then she found herself at a dinner where the captain showed up. And uh, many years later, she, uh, she recalled, uh, quote, The gentleman came in from dinner. I was sitting at one end of a card table. Upon the table sat a large French clock, which effectually concealed anyone sitting behind it. Captain Rogers came in with the quiet and determined step which I learned to know so well. When Minerva moved to glimpse uh, around the clock to see who was there, she recalled, I bent forward to do so, and to my confusion found a pair of piercing black eyes fixed on me. I withdrew my gaze very hastily, but the gentleman all arose and walking, walked into the garden. When my mother and myself were going home in the evening, I asked her what she thought of Captain Rogers, who seemed to be the hero of the day. And she replied that she did not like him at all. She said that his countenance was dreadful. Those black and heavy eyebrows gave him such a forbidding look that it made her tremble. Several days later, though, uh, Minerva's mother came home with a completely different impression. The young officer was exceedingly polite and friendly and had helped her in town with her shopping. Soon Rogers was getting introduced to Minerva directly. And after uh, that, his visits became frequent, she recalled later, and his attentions to me quite conspicuous. So they got married in 1806, and by 1811, Rogers was the leading naval officer in active service uh, in the U.S. Navy. One of, uh, really, the great finds of our research, I think, was the exchange of letters between uh, John and Minerva Rogers during the war um, in the manuscripts of the Library of Congress. Uh, their correspondence reveals a portrait, really, of two uh, smart and uh, intelligent partners, um, uh, she reporting on uh, the home front and he reporting on, uh, to some degree, on what was happening at sea. Um, Their letters show their affection for their children and concerns for precarious household finances when a naval salary was meager. Uh, A year before the war started, Rogers bought lottery tickets for each of their two little boys. He said, I hope they may be more fortunate in pecuniary matters than their father, he wrote Minerva. Keep up your spirits, my wife, for my own peace of mind depends upon yours. Kiss Robert and Frederick for me. So, and during the war, he tried to uh, allay Minerva's uh, anxieties with the most positive spin imaginable on the uncertainties of silence. He wrote, should you not hear of me for some time to come, it will be the most certain proof that I am well. So uh, Minerva, for her part, gave him news of, of ships in port. She wrote of captured British uh, ships, um, uh, including uh, the Macedonian when it came into port in New York. She appears, uh, she said, I went on board the Macedonian. She appears to be a large ship, but very much out of order. Well, that had, it had, had its masts shot off, and so that's not too surprising. The war came truly to their family's doorstep, uh, though, in the spring of 1813, when the British attacked uh, the Rogers' hometown of Havre de Grace uh, from the water and burned a number of houses. And you could still see the little uh, defense battery there uh, in town. Um, and uh, so it was really uh, a very a personal attack that, uh, that gave Rogers even more uh, motivation in his, his work. For Navy families, the war brought the possibility of prosperity, though, in a way that uh, peace uh, did not. And it was through prize money. Uh, the practice of crews and officers sharing in the, uh, dividing the cargoes of ships that they captured. The 1812 war was, was the last war where privateers were commissioned and could get paid that way too. Um, so it was a very uh, open and uh, official commission um, that you got from the U.S. government 
uh, to uh, serve when needed as uh, sort of an adjunct to the Navy. Um, and you would, uh, the, and sort of ship owners and their crews uh, sort of had a contract by which they apportioned the prizes of any enemy ships that they took. And so Baltimore was very much uh, a center of privateer activity. Uh, the uh, Pride of Baltimore uh, is, uh, this is Pride of Baltimore too, is, is uh, modeled on one of those clippers and in fact uh, takes its name from the nickname of uh, one of the most audacious privateer ships, the Chasseur, uh, whose captain took many prizes during the war and even uh, went across the Atlantic and dared to issue a, a one-ship blockade uh, notice. He said, uh, I've blockaded uh, the England from, uh, uh, from going a stretch, and he sent the, uh, the, the notice of that to, to Fleet Street and had it posted at Lloyd's of London um, to make his point and didn't stay too long to enforce it but it was a, a very bold move. Another Marylander privateer uh, was a ve revolutionary veteran named Joshua Barney, who was concerned about defending the Chesapeake Bay. And uh, so by the time of the 1812 war, he was uh, obviously one of the more uh, older uh, officers to return to service. Uh, but he was uh, so concerned that he proposed that a, a gunboat flotilla defend the bay, and um, with a very specific and fairly practical uh, approach, he got his commission to do that. Um, so he uh, started to assemble uh, a flotilla and, um, and recruited uh, sea, you know, sailors to, to be part of that. And uh, one of those was Charles Ball, an African-American freedman who uh, enlisted in the force of gunboats to defend the bay. Uh, Charles Ball had bought his freedom and worked for farmers in eastern Maryland for uh, a number of years before uh, enlisting in the Navy uh, with the flotilla. And uh, there, uh, Ball later wrote, he found himself employed sometimes in the capacity of a seaman and sometimes as a cook. Um, African Americans in the lands around the bay, of course, uh, you know, were, many of them were enslaved and they had to tread very carefully uh, during the war. They heard about um, the offers of the British for, for their freedom. Uh, thousands of, of enslaved blacks deserted to the British during the 1813 uh, and 1814 campaign, as Charles Ball knew, uh, based on British assurances that uh, they would receive their freedom uh, in, in return for joining the British fight against the U.S. So many freedmen, like uh, Charles Ball, uh, joined the American Navy despite no such guarantees. Uh, a section of, of his memoir offers a glimpse into that dilemma and, uh, and his commitment to the cause. Uh, he said, I had been on board only a few days when the British fleet entered the Patuxent and forced our flotilla high up the river. I was present when the flotilla was blown up and assisted in the performance of that operation upon the barge that I was in. The guns and the principal part of the armament of the flotilla were sunk in the river and lost." So indeed, as he says, the gunboats were scuttled uh, in the Patuxent by the U.S. Navy themselves. Um, they uh, aimed to block the British advance. It was an idea to sort of so that the British would not be able to use the gunboats and, in fact, would have to, uh, w w couldn't navigate around them. The Patuxent, as you may see at that point, it was a, a very narrow uh, point. Um, and later, many wrecks from that time, uh, like this one. Whoops, that's Charles Ball. This one uh, in the uh, Great Lakes resisted discovery. Uh, in the last few years, the Navy, uh, Maryland Department of Highways, and the Maryland Historical Trust uh, have partnered to explore the Patuxent stretch where the gunboats uh, appeared to be. And so uh, just uh, in the last couple of years, had uh, people, there's uh, Susan Langley with American Historical Trust leading the sounding for uh, one of the ships, the U.S. Uh, Scorpion. Uh, and they have they mapped out the uh, dimensions of the ship and, and found recovered a number of items, including uh, a mug, a pewter mug, uh, that uh, may have belonged to one of the African American sailors of Charles Ball's cohort. Ball's account resumes uh, after the scuttling of the, the gunboats as the sailors marched to help protect Washington, uh, only to find the army and militia, the U.S. Army and militias themselves, in chaos. Uh, quote, I marched with the troops of Barney from Benedict to Bladensburg and traveled nearly the whole distance through heavy forests of timber 
or numerous and dense cedar thickets. When we reached Bladensburg and the flotilla men uh, were drawn up in line to work at their cannon, armed with their cutlasses, I volunteered to assist in working the cannon next to Commodore Barney. We had a full and perfect view of the British Army as it advanced along the road, and I could not but admire the handsome manner in which the British officers led on their fatigued and worn-out sailors. He's right, because actually the sailors that they were watching were veterans of the Napoleon, of the Napoleonic War. So uh, the British had uh, gotten some of their best and most experienced uh, troops on board right after uh, serious action in the Napoleonic War, brought them across the Atlantic and sent them into battle to capture Washington. Uh, uh, Charles Ball wrote, I stood at my gun until the Commodore was shot down when he ordered us to retreat and I was told by the officer who commanded our gun, if the militia regiments that lay upon our right and left could have been brought to charge the British in close fight as they crossed the bridge, we should have killed or taken the whole of them in a short time. But the militia ran like sheep chased by dogs. Well, the British took Washington as retaliation for an American attack on York, Canada, uh, the previous summer. And they burned uh, the White House, Congress, and other official buildings uh, to make the point. News traveled nearly as fast as the light from the flames, and the people did from miles around see the flames of Washington as, as it burned uh, and galvanized Americans even further in a way that uh, the divisive war hadn't yet. Uh, one editor and militia member wrote, every American heart is bursting with shame and indignation at the catastrophe the most disastrous news reached us, Minerva Rogers wrote her husband. I have just heard that Washington is in ashes. I am bewildered and am afraid to ask for news. May God preserve and bless you. So John Rogers, after racing to Washington and leading uh, the cleanup of the Navy Yard there, was anxious to go defend Baltimore because uh, they knew that that was next. Would to God it was in my power to return to Baltimore immediately as I am well assured that our seamen would be of more service there than they are likely to be here, he wrote to a general. Uh, I feel a deep interest in the welfare of Baltimore. From what I have witnessed, I cease to be surprised at anything the enemy was permitted to do. Two weeks later, with tensions running high, Minerva sent her husband another letter. She had just glimpsed a convoy of British ships heading up the bay. Now visible from the top of the house, about 25 or 30 sails, she scrawled, knowing the ships would bear down on Rogers and his men. I find all my fortitude is insufficient for the calls upon it. Whenever you have a moment, drop me a line. If I should hear a cannonading from Baltimore, good heavens. And indeed, the sound of artillery uh, would soon come uh, from Baltimore to Harvard Grace. Here in Baltimore, Rogers quickly set about building defenses on the east side facing the Patapsco. A mile of earthworks rose up. Uh, the center section on Hampstead Hill, uh, still known as Rogers uh, Bastion, uh, was armed with 16 artillery cannon. And Rogers summoned naval forces from uh, Philadelphia and ordered sailors to sink old hulks of ships to block the harbor. So he was heartened by Baltimoreans' spirit and their intention, quote, to defend the place to the last extremity. But most people were sure that Baltimore would pay dearly in a devastating attack. While the British uh, took their positions, and these were uh, sort of war-hardened veterans against uh, state militias for the most part, a lawyer named Francis Scott Key went aboard a truce ship to negotiate the release of prisoners held by the British. So all day on September 13th and into the next, the British bomb ships rained down an estimated 133 tons of shells onto Fort McHenry, roughly one every minute. The thundering warheads came with heavy rain and high winds, yet despite the storm, the sky lit up with explosions, thunder mixing with the roar of the bombs that they could be heard as far as Philadelphia. And think about just for a minute, for about Minerva Rogers' state of mind uh, during that night, hearing that, not being able to sleep. And think of Key, held by the British, powerless and isolated from his people, caught within the floating engine that was pounding them ruthlessly that way. And by sunrise, uh, on September 14th, the sky had cleared, uh, showing the huge flag the Americans had hauled up. By that point, damage to British bomb ships and their infantry's failure to advance forced the British to abandon the attack, 
a poem poured out of key like a flood of elation of, of relief uh, from the fear of annihilation. And he called it the defense of, of Fort McHenry. Well, the war and the sea allowed many people uh, to make new identities uh, in the service, including at least three women and probably uh, number three that we know about, and so probably a number more. There were letters, several accounts published. Uh, a number of those revealed to be published, written by men under uh, pseudonyms. But there are authenticated uh, cases of women who did serve uh, in the war, in the, in the Navy. Uh, as early as September 1812, uh, one Navy surgeon on the Great Lakes wrote in his diary, uh, we this day um, discovered uh, uh, among the crew a female clad in ship's apparel. He did not give her name. Um, typically, they would be put off at the next port. Uh, later in the American squadron, uh, captured on Lake Champlain in 1813, uh, one woman, Eliza Romley of Ipswich, New Hampshire, showed up on a list of prisoner of war uh, in, the, in a Canadian camp, prisoner 240. And she was just uh, 19 years old and had a, a scar on her upper lip, uh, brown hair, average height. She uh, arrived at the camp with other sailors after a hard-fought battle and uh, spent, she spent weeks in the detention with the other prisoners before the British realized uh, she was a woman. So uh, women managed to pass uh, in service in ways that uh, we'd be surprised. Um, a third American woman uh, sailor served on the privateer Revenge, uh, which was captured by the British in 1813. So by the war's end, uh, some of these stories uh, had, had convinced uh, some people, like uh, Stephen Decatur and other officers, that they could allow women uh, to serve on board ships, at least as nurses. And so that was a big shift in policy right there. Well, Samuel Leach, the English powder monkey uh, from Macedonia, also changed uh, his identity to some degree. He, uh, he was captured early in the war. He managed to uh, avoid imprisonment uh, when the ship was taken to New York. And he even enlisted in the U.S. Navy then. And so in 18, by 1814, his hair was uh, grown longer like, a, like a, a U.S. sailor and tied back. And uh, he tried to blend in with other uh, American sailors serving on a U.S. ship. Well, uh, many years passed later, uh, Samuel Leach became a, uh, a shopkeeper in Massachusetts. And, um, and at one point, he was visiting New York and uh, just happened to uh, go down by the harbor and saw uh, his old ship, the Macedonian, uh, in the harbor there. And so this was uh, about 25 years later. Um, this is actually the, uh, the figurehead from the Macedonian now on the campus of the Naval Academy in Annapolis. Um, and so he, with strong feelings, he climbed aboard the ship and, uh, he, as he wrote, stood on the spot where I had fought in the din of battle and with many a serious reflection recalled the horrors of that dreadful scene. Um, soon, soon the old sailors uh, who were now the crew of the Macedonian gathered around him, listening to his tale of the old battle. The visit affected him deeply and inspired him to write his life story, uh, 30 Years from Home. Uh, another of the, the volumes that was just fascinating to come across. We, again, we included parts of his story in the, uh, in the book, um, which really brings alive what, what uh, the life was like then and the recollections of the war later. Time was less kind to uh, other veterans. Uh, after the Bladensburg fiasco, Charles Ball uh, went to help uh, defend Baltimore. And after the British were repulsed, uh, he got his discharge and went to work in Baltimore. Uh, I worked in various places in Maryland as a free black man, sometimes in Baltimore, frequently in Washington. But he got no thanks of a grateful nation or any pension. Uh, he worked hard, and by 1820, he had saved enough to buy 12 acres of land uh, here in Baltimore. He built a house, farmed uh, his land, and owned cattle, he had everything he needed, um, and, but then in 1824, that all changed. Uh, he was uh, caught, kidnapped by a slaveholder uh, from Georgia and taken back into slavery. Uh, seized by someone calling himself a sheriff, Ball was dragged to jail with others who told him they'd been bought by a slave trader. So he soon realized that uh, he was being hijacked to Georgia, 
uh, forced to walk the road back to slavery. So it was with uh, really cruel irony that they forced March, pa- they're paused in Bladensburg, in fact, uh, where he reflected, uh, it seemed as if it had been but yesterday that I had seen the British columns advancing across the bridge now before me, directing their fire against me and my companions in arms. The thought now struck me that if I had deserted that day and gone over to the enemies of the United States, how different would my situation at this moment have been? And this, thought I, is the reward of the part I bore in the dangers and fatigues of that disastrous battle. So it took more than a decade before Ball managed to escape from slavery a second time and create a new life in Philadelphia. And he too published a uh, a memoir, and one that deserves uh, another look today. Um, The latest reprint is called 50 Years in Chains. Um, And we, of course, include parts of it in the... uh, in the book, but uh, it's also in complete uh, version in, um, in the library here, and you can check it out. Well, the war's aftermath uh, played out on the public stage in papers and memoirs like these uh, for much of the 1800s. Uh, Stephen Decatur uh, died only five years after the war ended, um, and the war ended again uh, Kind of uh, strangely, it, uh, the, the, the treaty that ended it uh, was negotiated and completed uh, on Christmas Eve, 1814, and it was essentially a draw. Um, the U.S. didn't get uh, Canada as it wanted. They didn't uh, get much of the, what they uh, demanded, but they did have um, the prestige of having, of the Navy particularly, having uh, bested uh, the, uh, the British Navy in many uh, in, in many uh, actions. And then several weeks after the treaty, before the news had reached the U.S., uh, Andrew Jackson uh, repelled the British at, at New Orleans. And so the Battle of New Orleans kind of sealed the upward uh, feeling by the, the U.S. that it, it had won the war. Um, it was more complex than that. Um, but uh, its uh, it, its leaders were really... Uh, Affected by the war, and it, it marked uh, right after the war, the Navy uh, received a, a huge uh, resolution from Congress to have a much more powerful defense uh, for, uh, for the Navy than previously been given. Um, John Rogers went on to a pre- brilliant career, uh, and Minerva lived a long, very long life. Uh, beginning a memoir, uh, she never finished. Um, uh, she died in 1877 at age 93. Uh, the war left a mark on the country and the Navy. Uh, never again would the U.S. rely, as Jefferson had insisted, on just a few uh, vessels too weak to defend its shores. And the war shaped veterans, including another uh, boy named David F- Farragut, uh, who was the adopted son of a dashing uh, 1812 Captain uh, David Porter, who had commanded the Essex during the 1812 war. Um, so like uh, Samuel Leach, uh, Farragut was... Uh, really shaped by that experience of of battle as a as a young boy, uh, and uh, shaped his leadership uh, of the the navy in, in the Civil War and beyond. Well, this week we get a, a rare chance to to glimpse something of what uh, that time felt like, uh, what the at least the the day to day elements of that would be like. Uh, by getting on board these ships. Uh, many are now training ships, and they're still used as training ships because of, uh, you know, uh, apart from uh, the, even though their, their technology is not uh, up to date for, for, naval, uh, uh, for naval officers to use, the idea of forging leadership in a very bare-bones uh, place where you have to sail, where you have to navigate uh, the elements and other people uh, is still seen to have value. If you do get on board the private uh, on the Pride of Baltimore, uh, which uh, I recommend, or one of the others um, that have come uh, halfway around the world in some cases, this is the Deweruchi from Indonesia. Uh, so these are not just sort of models that get carted around from one uh, port to the next. They really are uh, ships. Um, ask the crew about their lives and their routines uh, on the water and maybe what inspired them to get into that. Um, and you'll find a lot of them have great stories, either uh, on the deck or, or how they got into it, how they got trained, um, uh, and maybe less inspiring stories of, of uh, the day-to-day regi- regime, but it's fascinating to, to explore 
Um, and I recommend you find that as well as uh, discovering the stories of the, the veterans of uh, the 1812 war, uh, as, again, as in the library and, uh, and in the, the book. I, you'll do see in the illustrations uh, of the book that will be in the library as well, um, just a lot of elements of life then that uh, uh, have been hard to come by before that. So thank you very much. Yeah, I'd be glad to take uh, questions and comments uh, at this point. Uh, there's one over here. Do you think the United States had good reasons to go to war? Was it because of the suppression of the sea? Um, was there good reason to go to the war by the U.S.? And certainly the, uh, the, um, the impressment of seamen was a, uh, a legitimate complaint uh, for, um, for the U.S. To, uh, whether it was valid as a uh, sort of a to, to, to cause a declaration of war to get that resolved, uh, I'm not sure. There are more other factors uh, politically that played in then, uh, but that was the one that was presented uh, particularly to the public. Any other questions or um, the title of the book says and the war of eighteen twelve and the rise of the US Navy. So my question to you is subsequent to the war, a period of eighteen fourteen ish, to what degree was uh, Congress and the nation prepared to really fund a Yeah, they uh, were uh, very committed coming out of the war, actually. And the, so even uh, uh, in a post-war economy, that was one of the largest uh, budget uh, commitments was to, uh, right in clear recognition of that they needed self-defense, you know, with Washington still uh, uh, in ashes, uh, basically. There was a recognition that both in more training, uh, you know, Annapolis got... Uh, uh, started and, and beefed up, and uh, and more ships, particularly. I mean, there had been during the war um, uh, a frenzy of, of, of short-term shipbuilding, but there was a sustained effort to build up a, a fleet uh, in the years after the war uh, that did continue. And if I can follow up with that, to protect our shores, because when you think of the war as you described it, and I'm not about the war, so I'm less Well, I, there were well, that possibly, but there were naval victories that the U.S. did uh, win, um, and there were, uh, like the one mentioned of the United States versus the Macedonian. There were many, uh, particularly prominent ones. Of course, the U.S.S. Constitution uh, got its fame at that point because it was one of the early victories uh, in September of um, 1812. Uh, it, it took uh, the uh, the British ship. Uh, and there was so there were a number of particularly one-on-one -on -one, uh, encounters where the better training of American sailors helped to uh, win the day. They had both more at stake. They were better trained, they were, and uh, um, and you know they proved themselves uh, in, in ways that was uh, it, it very much was kind of the birth of strategically the Navy. Uh, people like Theodore Roosevelt went back and studied it for its lessons. Uh, it wasn't just in terms of the shore. Uh, defenses, but it was actually on the open seas and on the the Great Lakes, um, where that was proven. Yes. You know, I would have to double check, but I believe that they they had a training before the war. They had a graduation, but. Uh, but I don't believe it was formally, it wasn't as formally instituted the way West Point was until after the war. Yes, Bob. Baltimore enjoys a reputation for the activities of the privateers But did, did the privateers have much of an effect on the, on the British war? It's more about recruitment, basically. 
Well, um, they, they may have had more of an uh, impact in the, during the Revolution, in fact, uh, where the U.S. Uh, and George Washington relied on, on uh, uh, you know, privateers because uh, there was no Navy for the, for the colonies. Um, but uh, they did harry the, the British blockade. Um, they took enemy ships both uh, in the Caribbean uh, and uh, off, the, uh, uh, off the southeast, um, so they had uh, some impact, but it was not a decisive impact. I think it was uh, uh, fair to say that. Yes? Um, you talk about how the Northeast, for obvious reasons, is very against going into the war. But how did the Mid-Atlantic and the South, the kind of the Great Lake region, were they more or less just kind of indifferent, or were they very for They were more definitely for... Uh, the war as seeing as as an opportunity to expand territory both westward and uh, northward uh, to Canada. So, particularly, uh, kind of, I think Baltimore may have been right on that dividing line, and that was why there was such fierce uh, um, feeling on both sides here. Um, but that was that was what stoked the war to some degree. That's the uh, South and the Midwest, pretty much. Yes. Oh, don't be embarrassed, as I... Uh, well, they're very, uh, they're different, but one reason why you might be thinking of that is because in many ways the um, uh, Native Americans sided with uh, the, and fought alongside the British uh, in, um, in the War of 1812. And so there was, it was, you know, the, in some sense the U.S. was uh, fighting uh, a, a larger power with uh, Native American uh, allies uh, in both those wars, because the war, uh, the French uh, Indian War, was before independence in the 1760s, and uh, this war was uh, 50 years later. But um, uh, yes. That's a good question, um, because in fact there were privateers on both sides. Uh, so one thing we came across was, in fact, a, uh, at the, the naval archive, and uh, they had uh, captured a, or they had a, uh, a, a commission uh, with a big ornate uh, portrait of George III commissioning a, 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 Brit- a Canadian privateer. So there were privateers uh, uh, off of uh, Maine, for example, who, who did a lot of. Uh, um, harrying of, of U.S. Uh, ships at that point. So the, they were, um, yeah, particularly Maine, uh, the Caribbean, and, um, and, and Baltimore were uh, you know, particular areas. New York sent out a lot of, uh, a lot of privateers as well. There were, when, they, when the war started, there was a whole uh, flood of sort of commissioning and uh, sailors getting on board privateers, uh, not just in Baltimore but in New York. Yes. Um, you said it was. You don't. You, I don't think you made it clear what was the main cause of the war. You said it wasn't so much the uh, implicit. Uh, it was partly that, but I'd say the uh, desire for expansion, uh, desire to, uh, was was a more major cause, and there was, and Madison was getting pressure from Congress to declare war for that reason. Um, that's right, and they, I think they probably thought that while uh, the British were still occupied with fighting the French, that they had a decent chance of getting that issue uh, you know, done just by marching up to Canada. Yeah, it, it was bad, as, uh, as Joshua Penny's uh, account, but it, 
and so politically it, it was a, a more uh, appealing rationale for the war, but it wasn't the only one. I, uh, first, here. I did not uh, that, that that could be, but I have not did not come across that in my readings of it. Did you research the British side, British archives? Uh, only well, to some degree, we did have uh, didn't couldn't go to to the the British library to uh, explore things, but we did find accounts of some of the British commanders uh, about their impressions of the war, of missteps that the British Navy had made in terms of not uh, assessing the U.S. Navy uh, or, uh, properly, and also of the uh, British General uh, Cockburn, who uh, who launched the uh, the campaign up with the Potomac uh, and uh, his accounts of both ships getting... Uh, uh, basically uh, 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 landed on the, the shoals in the, in the Potomac and having to get pulled off of them um, and taking Alexandria. and uh, So we did uh, include some of those accounts as well as uh, some of the British um, uh, uh, soldiers who were uh, attacking uh, New Orleans and what they dealt with. So we, we did get uh, some uh, of those impressions. Uh, maybe the you first. Uh, again, going back to Baltimore and the uh, whatever it's called, the siege, um, and also um, I think there was a battle, the British Battle of North Point, and recently there was a PBS documentary on the war in the Chief Trump. It's on tonight. It's on tonight. Pardon me? It's on tonight. Repeat. Well, anyway, it's good. Uh, in the newspaper, the ever reliable Washington Times, the Ah. And um, so my question with that uh, is, I've actually always wondered why the, why the British left, why they didn't, you know, if you're sitting in a boat and you're pummeling big um, mortars and you're not advancing, but they're not hitting you because there really weren't that many sunks in this stuff. They just had sort of a stalemate. Well, what happened actually was why the. They, why is it considered a win? Well, they did. The, the British did send basically the, the the artillery. The British there was just a, to be kind of make room for and advance by the their infantry uh, on the shore, and so they they sent one of their um, uh, sort of Napoleon hardened uh, troops under uh, General Ross, and who was marching, and they got they didn't know the territory well. They they uh, got a little confused, and then. Uh, there were uh, in the battle uh, that did happen the, the um, uh, Maryland militia shot uh, General Ross managed to kill him and so by shooting the leader then the the, uh, the British troops retreated they lost their uh, grounding and so um, it was in that sense uh, you know they they uh, threw the the British forces into to chaos and they did retreat. Oh, well, yeah. No, well, no, I don't think the British had any desire to, to try to reclaim uh, the U.S. So talk, calling it a second war of independence is misleading in that sense. Uh, it's more in terms of independence of mind and, uh, and fortifying oneself and, and identity. Uh, and certainly Canada, uh, its own identity became much more clear after the war uh, as a result. Yeah, one more time. It was a, a feat of well, 
Andrew Jackson really to unite uh, a lot of disparate groups in New Orleans um, to, to fight off the British. And uh, that the fact that the British had their lines so far extended from what they could support um, that it really did, uh, uh, you know, they, they, it was a surprise that there was a unified, uh, I mean, he, he managed to get uh, Jean Lafitte and his uh, crew uh, and uh, uh, several different groups of, of Native Americans and uh, New Orleanians of all stripes to really unite in the, in the battle. And um, that's what really repelled uh, the British. Oh, thank you very much.